Last week, we asked this question. If, if Jesus came and the promise he gave is, I can give you a life better than the life you have, life in all its fullness. In fact, we had a memory verse from last week. Any of you try to memorize the memory verse? You're afraid to raise your hand because you're like, you're going to call on me. I won't call on you, but we'll bring it up on the screen and we can all pretend that we memorized it and we'll say it word perfect, okay? So here it is. All right, we're going to have you actually do it from memory. No, here we go. Okay, let's say it together. My purpose is to give life in its fullness. All right, take it off. Let's say it again. My purpose is to give life in its fullness. See, it's not that hard to memorize a verse. Way to go. That is something that Jesus said, and it was a promise that he gave. Here's the situation. So many of us would say, my life doesn't feel like it's any more full. I don't know that my life is really all that much better than what it was before I became religious, before I started going to church, before I knew Jesus. I feel like it's kind of the same. And so this series really is answering the question, what is that life and how do we step into it? And what we talked about last week is that God operates with us or interacts with us in sort of three places in our life. And we use a house as a metaphor. And so, oh, we have a house here. Um, So we have what you might call the main floor, just sort of the operating floor of our life. We're going to talk about that today, so I'm going to just leave that here. But that's where we do our sort of day-to-day stuff. We also have uh, a part of our life that we're not excited about, that we're not proud of, but is part of it nonetheless, and that is the basement. And we don't have a full basement here. But the idea of a basement is we have parts in our life that are kind of secret, that we're not super excited that is part of our life, that we'd be embarrassed if other people found out about it. And uh, maybe it's most defined by we do lots of secret things in the basement. And here's the reality. God's very interested in that. And he's not interested in just pounding us further into the ground, but actually helping us to get out of the basement. So next week, actually, we're going to talk a lot about the basement. Then we also have uh, what might be an upper room, and that's where we relate to God. And that is such a mysterious thing. It should be the easiest, most natural thing. But I don't know about you. Do you ever find it hard to relate to somebody that you can't see, you can't hear, you can't feel, uh, you know, you can't taste? Our senses don't generally help us with that. And we're told to have this amazing relationship and faith in this being. And so we're going to talk about that. How do you actually do that? I mean, how, do you, how does that become a vibrant part of your life and not just something that I ought to be doing better at? So that's kind of what we're doing. And what Jesus promises us is as we do that, our life will become full. That doing life with God in that kind of a way makes our life full, a kind of life that we could never have otherwise. So that's what we're up to. But today, we're going to talk about the main floor. And incidentally, uh, you're going to need a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we have greeters on the side that would love to give you a Bible. Just raise your hand, and uh, we will get a Bible out to you. Just keep them up. We'll get the Bibles to you. And uh, you can bring yours also, and uh, that's a good thing as well. Now, today, as we talk about the main floor, let me give you the, the word that the Bible uses for the main floor. It is the word world. And when I say the word world, for those of you that are more maybe uh, sort of savvy about how the Bible talks about things, the word world, especially in the New Testament, 
Is that mostly a positive term or mostly a negative term when it talks about the world? Negative, right? It's mostly a negative term. Most of the time when you hear world, it is be on high alert. The world is not a good thing. Don't get polluted by the world. Don't fall into the world. Satan rules the world, those sorts of things. Uh, to kind of highlight it, James says these words in 4.4. James 4.4, he says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Oh my gosh, that is such strong terminology. And uh, there's, there's kind of no wiggle room on that, right? It's like, hey, if you're going to love the world or the things in the world or focus on the world or be in, you know, saturated by the world, just beware, you've made an enemy that you don't want to have. You've made an enemy out of God. And those are just such sobering words. Uh, and unfortunately, maybe, that's not the only verse that says it. There are a lot of verses that talk about the world really being something we need to avoid, stay away from, to love the world is not to love God. And, and, and so here's what I want to point out. This creates a dilemma for us, honestly. And in fact, the only reason you may not be feeling the dilemma right now is because you're sitting in church and you're not doing anything in the world. But I just want to tell you, from the moment you walk out of here and get in your car and go to eat or you start to, you know, maybe you exercise, you're going to go to the beach, tomorrow you're going to go to work, you're going to get back into the routines of life, you're going to be checking your bank account or your retirement accounts. Uh, all of the things that comprise our interactions with the world are going to take front and center stage in your life. And I'm not so naive to think that you, over the next seven days, are going to spend the majority of that time praying and reading the Bible and going to Bible studies, and doing all the things that are kind of spiritual, and, and just to let you know, I'm not going to do those things either. So do you see that we start to create this real kind of uncomfortable dilemma that we're told in here, when we're not really doing that much in the world, you should hate the world. But then we get out of here, and that's all we think about, is how do I interact in the world? And we're, we're sort of pushed into this corner of, so should I sort of guiltily do stuff in the world? Is there, should I just do the bare minimum so I'm not offending God too much? Should I just say, okay, well, church is church, and God's at church, and when I'm there, I'll focus on God. But for most of my life, I've got to not focus on God because I've got to, like, live in this world. I've got to make money. I've got to take care of my family. I want to be healthy. I want to eat right. So what are you going to do with that? How are you going to handle the dilemma that's set up. And let me just say one other thing. There's a really interesting verse. It's like the most famous verse in the New Testament. For God so loved the world. So we're supposed to hate the world, but what did God do? God loved the world. All right, so we're messed up. There's a problem here, right? I mean, there's got to be some issue. And of course, the answer is, is that world is used in a lot of different ways. So anyone that just says the world is all bad, that's wrong. Anybody that says the world is all good, that's wrong. The world is used in many different ways in the Bible. And here's the reality. God really cares how you interact in the world. He wants to be your partner when you walk out these doors today. And he wants to partner with you through the next 165 hours of your week. And then you guys will come back to church next week. 
together. That really is his thought. His thought is, I've made you to live in this world. And I've got ways to help you. I've got ways that you can do that. Not only will you not separate yourself from me, you will actually fall more in love with me. You will even more understand the fullness as I partner with you on the main floor, on the world, in the world. So you interested in knowing that? Yeah, I'm interested in knowing that. Okay, so what I want you to do is turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 3. That's an Old Testament book. If you go back, it's about in the first quarter of the Bible. You've got Kings, you've got Samuels. If you hit a Samuel, you're not quite far enough. If you hit Chronicles, you've gone a little too far. Come back. 1 Kings chapter 3. Tell the story about a guy named Solomon. Solomon was the second king, well, really the third king in Israel, the second good king in Israel. Who was Solomon's dad? David. David was considered the greatest king Israel ever had. And while that's true, Solomon's kingdom was greater than David's kingdom. So David may have been the greatest king, but Solomon ruled over the greatest kingdom. In fact, Israel considers Solomon's reign the golden years, the golden years of Israel, because Israel was... Uh, an international power. It may have been the most powerful country in the whole world. Uh, it certainly was in that part of the world. It, uh, under Solomon's rule, uh, it, it really had uh, international peace, had great foreign relations. It did not have internal strife, which was super common uh, in most kingdoms during that time. The king was always afraid that he was going to be bumped off or there was going to be a mutiny or something. There was all kinds of things. There, none of that happened during Solomon's reign. And because of it, there was major prosperity. Uh, the kingdom never had it so good, and most people lived the best lives they had ever lived before under Solomon's reign. And so Solomon's reign was fantastic. And uh, what we want to do is look, because there's actually a reason given why Solomon had such a great reign, why things went so well for Solomon. And so let's start at the beginning, because the beginning is a very good place to start. And we'll look at what happened early in Solomon's reign. Solomon uh, is told in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 4, it says these words. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and, and God said... Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Now, Gibeon, at that time, they did not make sacrifices in the temple, the, the sort of famous temple. What would be the reason why they did not make sacrifices in the temple during Solomon's early years? Because who built the temple? Solomon. So it hadn't been built yet. Solomon was going to build the temple, hadn't done it yet. So Gibeon was this place where they did sacrifices. Solomon goes there. It was about seven or eight miles from where his kingdom was. It would be like if we walked from here and went down to the pier. That's about how far it went. He took with him a thousand cattle, probably. They were probably cattle. And they made sacrifices of a thousand cattle. And just so, you know, we, that's a throwaway line for us. I was like, oh, yeah, a thousand cattle. That was a tremendous amount of money. And it took a long time. It probably took a full week to sacrifice a thousand cattle. Uh, you know, and so there was all the sort of blood and guts of that and the pageantry. There was all kinds of things. It was a big, big deal that Solomon starts off his reign that way. And is God happy with it? Uh, not a trick question. Is God happy with it? Yes. 
Absolutely. So he's, he looks at Solomon. He says, ask for anything. I'm really happy with what you've done. And God says to him, just ask for anything. Now, think of this. If God asked you, God, sovereign God of the universe, that's like more powerful than a genie, he tells you, you can ask for anything. What would you ask for? What is it that you'd come to God and say, okay, well, if I've got just one wish, here it goes. So what did Solomon ask for? In verse 7, it picks up, it says this, Now, Lord my God, you have made your king, your servant, king in place of my father David. This is Solomon talking. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong for who is able to govern this great people of yours. So Solomon's given this blank check. God says, ask for anything. I'm so just, I love all those cattle. I am so pleased with that. Just ask for anything. And Solomon says, all right, here's what I need. I need a discerning heart because this job you've given me to oversee the kingdom is over." Overwhelming. I mean, I am young, and I don't have experience, and I don't have the life experiences that my dad David did, and I just look at all of the things facing me, and I don't, I'm not sure I can do a great job. Please, if you give me one thing, help me to have a discerning heart. And the word actually for discerning heart, this is really kind of an interesting thing. A heart that listens and obeys. A heart that hears you, God, and then does what you tell me to do. That's literally what discerning heart means here. It means, in fact, the the word for listen and obey in the Hebrew is the same word. To listen and to obey in a Jewish mindset back when Solomon's living was if you hear God, you will obey God. In other words, if you don't obey God, what does that mean? You haven't heard him. Because if you really hear him, you'll actually do what he says. In other words, it isn't enough just to comprehend, just to understand, even to agree with, to believe with it. What Solomon knew is it's not enough for me just to hear you, God. I need to obey you. Give me a heart that hears you and then does it. That's what I need to have. And here's what he recognized. I can't do this, God, if you're not in my life. I need you in my life. I need you to be my partner. I need all my decisions to sort of go through both of us and not just me. I need you in my day-to-day world on my main floor, God. I need you or I can't do this. I can't run this kingdom the way you want. Well, do you think God's pleased with that? Oh my gosh, if God was happy about the cattle, listen to this. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for a long life or wealth for yourself, uh, nor uh, have you asked for the death of your enemies, uh, but for a discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked, and I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, uh, nor will there ever be. And we know that that's true. Solomon has the reputation of being the wisest person Uh, outside of Jesus, that ever walked the face of the earth. 
He had incredible wisdom. And when you read his story, you recognize, man, that guy was smart, wise, great, great leader. But God doesn't stop there. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke and he realized it had been a dream. And just incidentally, dreams, this kind of a dream is an actual encounter with God. It's not just, you know, like a really good dream. It was an encounter with God. And so God looks at it and he says, not only the thing you asked for will I give you, but I'm going to tag on the things that most people would ask for, which is wealth and honor and this really great reign and just, you know, all the things that you'd want to have as a king. And so God just sort of heaps it on. And we know when we look at Solomon's life that that kingdom really benefited from the prayer that Solomon gave and from the heart that, that he wanted and being discerning, all of those things happen. But for those of you that sort of know this story, and, and some of you may not, but some of you may know, did Solomon live his whole life with a discerning heart? No. And that's kind of the tragedy of the story, is that um, unlike most of us where we're idiots when we're young, and then we sort of have the life beat out of us, and then we come around and we make better decisions as we get older, hopefully that's what we do, Solomon reversed that order. He did really great out of the gate, but as his life went on, he actually uh, kind of messed up. And his heart grew further and further away from God until he was miserable at the end of his life. We, we sort of hope and think that he sort of rebounded right at the end of his life, and that's a good ending. But we know that a, the second half of his life was not so great because he didn't live by the principles that God had given him. So here's what I want to do. I want to use our remaining time to give you three principles that Solomon recognized when he was young and then walked away from when he was older. And we learn on both sides of it the benefits of doing it right and also the curses of doing it wrong. Okay? So let's look at these sort of lessons learned. And the first one <clears throat> is that um, God has gifted us with the treasures, time, and talent that we have been given as we're on earth. In other words, he's given us the time, he's given us the treasures, and the talents, and this is what's amazing. The purpose of those is so we operate well in the world. Time, talents, and treasures help us operate well in the world, on the main floor, as we use in our sort of metaphor. God gives us those things so that we actually can be effective and successful as we operate on the main floor. Those are gifts to interact on the horizontal plane for the most part. And uh, many of us don't think that way. Many of us think, no, 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 no. God did not give me what I've got. I gave me what I've got. I mean, after all, it was not God that went through, you know, four years of college and graduate school and earned my law degree or became a doctor or, you know, went to tech school and did all the hard work, staying up at night, sweating it through, working while I was going to school, all those things. God did not do that. I did that. That was me. It's not God that's out there, you know, running every morning so that I can stay in some kind of shape and keep my heart running pretty well. You know, I'd love to give God credit, but I really can't because it's me. I'm out there doing it. It's not God that asked my spouse to marry me. 
You know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't God that had like the dry mouth when trying to come up with the words to propose. I mean, that was me. I'm in a marriage, and my marriage works because I work hard at my marriage. And uh, it's a very American way for us to think. And it's a very natural way, and it's the way I tend to think about things. Uh, but let me recount a story to you that happened to me uh, several years ago. I was driving down in San Clemente, and it, was, uh, it had rained. And so the ground was wet. And as I came up into downtown San Clemente on the Coast Highway, there was a whole bunch of lights in front of me, and there, it was obvious there had been an accident. So I pulled off to a side road, and I got out because I wanted to see what, what had happened. And I walked up, and in the middle of the road, there was a car that obviously had hit something. The front was kind of damaged. And then I looked on the ground, and there was a woman and her son lying on the ground. And the son was probably seven or eight years old. And they were Hispanic, and they, they had been sort of hit apart. So the, the boy was several yards away from the mom. They were both conscious, but they were both hurt. And as I sat there, they were both sort of crying out for each other, and they were speaking Spanish. And I don't know exactly what that story is, but that story probably goes something like this, that they uh, very well could be illegal immigrants that have come up over the border. They have no health insurance. Maybe they have no family here. They have no reason to believe anything good could possibly come from this and no hope that anyone will help them. The little boy, the seven-year-old boy, is sitting there not knowing if his mother is dead or what's happening. He's laying on the cold pavement. He's been hit by a car and he's scared to death. And do you know what the difference between that little boy and me is? He was born probably about 150 miles south of where I was born. I was born in the UCLA Medical Center. And he was probably born in Mexico. And I just want to ask you, how much credit can I take for that? How much does that have to do with my hard work and ingenuity and discipline and virtue? How much does that have to do with working my way through school and getting a good job and marrying a fantastic person? Here's what the Bible says, and here's what Solomon recognized. Everything good I have, God, came from you. And I'd be a fool to think otherwise. Now, this isn't to say that we aren't responsible to do with what God's given us. But when you talk about your time on earth, you don't earn your time. Your time is a gift. Your treasures on earth, the fact that we don't ever worry about where we'll sleep when we leave here. We never worry about our next meal. We probably worry about eating too much at our next meal. We don't worry about money. In fact, we keep money in our garbage cans, you know, our ashtrays. You know, we, we don't have enough room for it. We just throw it in our ashtrays. We don't use it for cigarettes. We use it for our extra money that we don't even know how much we've got. And I'm not condemning us. I'm just saying how foolish it is for us to think that's because it's all about me. It's because I've navigated this world so incredibly well. I have all of these gifts and all of these things that are happening, and I deserve them. And the wise thing that Solomon said at the beginning is he said, this is all given to me. My time, my treasures, even my talents, even my passions. You know, scientists have discovered now that when you are born, your mind already 
has, is works in a certain way that there are certain things that come easier to you, certain things you're passionate about. It has nothing to do uh, in at least the foundation with stuff that you've done and the environment that you live in has nothing to do with you. I mean, the point is, is that God really has given us this stuff. There's no way that we can take credit for it. And that was the thing that Solomon recognized. And it's so important for us that we recognize we make our way in this world and have success because God is good. God has gifted us. God has given things we never deserve. Just out of his goodness, he gave it to us. And that's where Solomon starts. Now, here's the second thing that Solomon recognized. The second thing is that we partner with God to bring his kingdom to earth. Now, this is a, this is a super loaded statement, and I can't give you all the information on it because it's very complicated theology. Um, but I, I do want to make this point. We are not on this earth just to make our own way in it. We are not in the world just to have the best life we can possibly have. Not from a biblical standpoint. In fact, you have a purpose here, and your purpose is way bigger than just you. So the person that ends their life saying, well, I got as much as I could and had the best life and the most pleasure and the greatest amount of happiness, what God would say is, well, then you missed out on what the purpose of life was. That was not the goal. The goal was not just for you to have the best life you can. God would say, no, no, listen. Your purpose is to bring my kingdom to earth. And you guys know the Lord's Prayer, right? Thy, you say it with me. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on as it is in. All right. Do you see the flow of that? It starts in heaven and the idea is my reign, the way that I want things to work, I want that to come down to earth. And I'm using you, I'm using Kevin, I'm using all of you to make that happen. Your job is to bring God's kingdom onto earth. And when we say that, another way you could say it is God's life. God's full life onto earth. Another way to say that is that you're here to bring God's love to earth. You're here to bring God's justice to earth, his generosity to earth. You're here to bring his truth to earth. You're here to bring his kingdom. My kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's that's the job that we have. It is always larger. Now, does God, is God against you spending things on yourself, time, treasure, and talents, that he doesn't want you to even think about yourself, don't ever do anything for yourself? No. It's love your neighbor as yourself, right? You guys know the commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, it's okay to take care of yourself. It's just don't ever stop with taking care of yourself because it's larger than that. It is taking care of that that is around you. You're to bring God's kingdom to the place that you live. Now, when you think about God's kingdom, there might be all kinds of thoughts, but I just want you to picture a world because the world will be like this one day. I mean, in fact, here's just another little throwaway line. We always think that when we die, we go to heaven, right? Hopefully. And that heaven is somewhere probably like up there. But do you know that's not the picture the Bible gives? At the end of time, what happens? Heaven, the new kingdom and the new earth, comes where? Here. It comes here. We're not going some far, far away. But this place is going to change a lot. And it will never change perfectly until you know, Christ returns. But in the meantime, do what you can to restore 
God's kingdom. So just think about this. Think about what it would be like if we lived in a world where there were no locks on the door because everything was safe. And there were no military because there were no wars. And there was no police or judicial system because there was no crime. And there were no dogs chasing cats because there were no cats. Right. <laughs> There's a perfect world coming, folks. Just hold on. Just hold on. So the question is this. Whose kingdom are you building? Whose kingdom? And you know, Solomon got that right. Early on, he realized, I'm building God's kingdom, Israel. Now we're called to build Jesus' kingdom. And the question always comes back, whose kingdom are you building? What energy are you putting in? What's your focus as you live through your life? Is it to bring God's kingdom to earth? Or do we tend to just focus on, hey, as long as my kingdom is looking pretty good, I'm okay with that. When Solomon started to think that way, by the way, when he started to think it's just about my kingdom, his life fell apart. He writes the most discouraging book in the whole Bible called Ecclesiastes, where he talks about the emptiness of life so many times it's hard to count. He uses the word vanity, emptiness. So many times you can't even count it. He gets shipwrecked at the end of his life because he forgets whose kingdom he's building. Because true satisfaction on a main floor comes from building God's kingdom. Here's the last point. Last point is this. Biblical rules are to keep us on track. Biblical rules are to keep us on track. Now, I, I need to be quick to say this because a lot of you come out of a background where you, you, the, the rules of Christianity were so much hammered into your face that after a while you just said, I can't live this way. I feel guilty constantly. I feel like I'm letting people down constantly. I just feel like God, if he had a big gavel, he would hit me on the head because I don't follow the rules. And, uh, and so let me be quick to say, following rules has almost nothing to do with being close to God or at least having a relationship because following uh, the rules actually um, sometimes get in the way of our intimacy with God. We think, hey, if I can just do the rules, I'm okay. But here's the reality is that while rule keeping doesn't necessarily do a lot to get you into the upper room, which we'll talk about, and sometimes it doesn't do that much to get you out of the basement either. Rules have a lot to do with how well you live on the main floor. Just want to tell you, rules, and let me explain why. Um, Jesus gave the great commandment, right? He was asked one time, what's the great commandment? And it was to love, all right, you guys know this commandment? I know that a lot of you know this commandment, so let's just say this boldly. The first one is to love God, your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you'll nail the second one, and to love others as yourself, to love your neighbor, to love others as yourself. All right, so he gives that command. Do you know that like 2,000 years later, there was uh, somebody that sang a song representing that truth? And uh, this band, incredible band, my favorite band, the Beatles. The Beatles sang a song. Do you know that? Do you believe that? You don't believe me, do you? You're going to sing it in just a second, and you're going to say, Kevin was right. They did sing that song. It was a number one hit for them, and it was called All You Need Is Love. And you guys know the song, right? So it goes, love, 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 love. 
you know, and then it, you know, it does that whole thing. And then at the end it says, all you need is love. Dun, 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 dun. All you need is love. Dun, 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 dun. Now everybody, all you need is Love is all you need. All right, so there you go. Beatles backing Jesus up all the way. All you need is love. So let me tell you the difference between when Jesus said that and how he lived and how the Beatles lived, because I'm sort of, I like the Beatles, so I know a lot about them. Uh, while they were singing that song, uh, they were basically comatose from drugs. Uh, they were sleeping around as much as they could, and a couple of them were married, but that didn't slow them down or stop them from doing that kind of stuff. Uh, they had major disdain for their fans. In fact, when you read what they felt about their fans, they basically hated their fans, and they didn't want to be around their fans. And uh, they were also going through a very nasty breakup. They were totally greedy. They, were, they had millions and millions of dollars coming in, but of course, they, each one of them thought they didn't have enough. And so here was the interesting thing. They sang a great song about love. There was one problem. They didn't live it. They had no concept of what it meant to live a loving life. They didn't love God. They didn't love their neighbor. They didn't love each other. And, and really, if you read about it, they didn't really love themselves very much during that time either. And so Jesus presents a truth to love God and to love your neighbor that is a universal truth. It is the way of life. The difference is Jesus actually lived it. He actually behaved that way. He actually thought that way. He talked that way. Rules are given by God because we so easily deceive ourselves thinking that we are great lovers, that we do a great job of loving God, and we do a great job of loving other people. And you know what? We would be deceived if there weren't just so many picking rules in the Bible that explain, well, if you really love someone, you're going to put them ahead of you. If you really love someone, you're going to be generous. If you really love someone, when it comes down to somebody else sort of getting the prestige or, you know, or the notoriety or you, you're going to say, well, let's give it to them. If you really love, there are so many details that the rules tell us, well, this is what love means then. And here's the problem, is we see rules as an end to themselves. They aren't an end to themselves. It's just what God says. Hey, you want to love? Let me just tell you what love looks like. This is what love looks like on the main floor. And there's all kinds of rules about that, all kinds of guidelines, all kinds of boundaries. Here's the great news. When we break one of those laws, God's grace fills in and he says, I still love you. I still love you. This isn't, the condition isn't a relationship here. I'm just telling you, if you want to live the best possible life, you'll follow my rules. And you know, Solomon had said something like that uh, near the end of his life. He wrote a proverb, great proverb, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It's the memory verse for this week. It says this, uh, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Um, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight, right? Uh, let's just say that again, okay? Is it up here? Let's just say it again, because we're going to, this is the one we're working on, a little harder than last week's, but you can do it, and it's a great verse to live by. Let's just say it again. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will make your paths straight. 
And you know, it, it's just great advice for living on the main floor. Trust God. Trust that when he says, this is the best way to live, here's a great rule to follow. He's not trying to get you to jump through a hoop or prove your love to him. He's just saying, I'm just telling you, this is the best way to live. So here's what I want to ask you to think about as we close up. Jairus is going to bring the band up and we're going to uh, close up the service. Here's what I want you to think about. Do you believe that your times, your time, your talents, and your treasure is actually a gift from God? You didn't really earn that. God has given it to you. For some of you, that's right where you got to start. You got to just say, I, I don't operate. I don't think that way. And I need to think that way. Secondly, do you really believe that bringing God's kingdom to earth is your greatest call? That is your purpose. Your purpose is to bring God's kingdom to earth. It is the first and foremost. Now, you can take care of yourself as well and take care of your family. That's part of it. But it's not exclusively it. It goes beyond. It really is bringing God's kingdom to earth. Uh, it's just, it's our purpose. It's what we do on the main floor. It's what you should be thinking about for the next 165 hours is how do I bring God's kingdom to earth? How does God use me? And then finally, are there any things that the Bible, you know the Bible says this, and you've just been so stubborn and said, I don't want to live that way. I don't want to do that. I don't want to think that way. I don't want to talk that way. And God's just so lovingly just saying, I'm just giving you a chance to live life on the main floor the right way. Will you trust in me? And believe that I'll make your path straight if you follow me on this. I know for me, uh, one of the things I was thinking this week about it, because I knew I was going to say this, I worry about money a lot. I worry about money a lot more than I should. And I, you know, I justify it. I just say things like, well, I'm just really responsible, or I just really care about my family, and so I really take seriously my responsibilities with our money. But you know what? If I'm honest, I just worry about it. I worry about our retirement. I worry about some debt that we have. I worry about uh, how much money we have in savings. I worry about how much money our family spends. I worry about how much money I make. I worry... you. You say money, I can think of something to worry about. I worry about it. And God says, I don't want you to worry about your money. I don't want you to live that way. You're being consumed by something that you should not be consumed by. I have provided. I want you to be wise with it, Kevin, but I don't want you to worry about it. And so I have this thought coursing through my mind. I have to go to CVS yesterday, and as I walk in, there's somebody sitting in front of CVS with their little box and their little bell, and they are collecting money. And I don't know how you feel when you see that. I curse it. I, think, I immediately go, oh, great. There is no way to get in and out of there and not give money without feeling guilty. That's just the, the thought of a godly man, just so you know. That's how I think. And uh, so when that happens, um, so I, I, I walk in and I actually have no money. So I tell the guy, I'll catch you on the way out. And then uh, when I came out, I got some money. And I just realized for me, I had to give him something. And I gave him way more than I normally would feel comfortable with. And it was just me saying, God, I believe you when you say, trust in me. Don't worry about the money as much. What is yours? 
What is yours? What is your issue right now that you know God's saying? Are you going to trust me in this? Listen, this is a week to get your main floor operating the way that God wants. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for the talents and the treasures. Thank you for the time you've given us here. We recognize that that's out of your goodness. Thank you so much. And we pray, Lord, that you would just help us to um, operate in a way on this floor that not only gives you honor, but gives us satisfaction, helps us live the life, the full life that you've come to give. Help us this week to do that well. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.